Hello everyone, welcome to the very first episode of After Office Hours, where I talk with professors about life, research, and anything you guys might be interested in learning about. I'm your host, Quinn Collins, and I have here with me Anna Robertson, who will be helping me with uh, everything in this podcast. And I'm very excited about today's conversation um, with Dr. Paul Woodruff, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, he is so many things, such a renaissance man. Uh, the Hayden Head Regents Chair of, um, or he was the Hayden Head Regents Chair as Director of Plan 2, and please correct me if I'm ever wrong at this. Um, he's a carpenter, um, a Vietnam War veteran, philosopher, classicist, um, and yeah, and I guess to begin, Professor, could you just give a little background on yourself, um, maybe what <coughs> classes you're currently teaching and, and things of that sort? Well, this fall I am teaching Plan to Philosophy, Problems of Knowledge and Valuation, and I start the semester with Ethics. We're now reading Kant, which is one of the high points from my perspective on the course. Uh, we're, uh, we're going to be doing a little more Greek philosophy later on and, and some classical Chinese philosophy which oh, wow. I think is of great value, and, and also some existentialism before we're done with the semester. <coughs> In another course, I'm teaching uh, a, a UGS uh, signature course, a first-year course outside Plan 2, called The Discovery of Freedom, which is uh, partly about the origins of democracy in ancient Greece, but I'm asking the students to uh, define and defend the freedoms that they think would be most important if we were to be founding a colony uh, afresh. And then I somehow have been landed with a third course. <coughs> <coughs> Which is, uh, on top of my usual schedule, a dear friend of mine who was also teaching a signature course had a terrible fall and is in the hospital and I'm uh, teaching his course for the semester. And that course is on, it's really on great ideas. So That's awesome, I guess, uh, in that vein, because my first question has to do with philosophy, but like it's something that's always interested me in the sense that um, how practical is philosophy really? Because I guess I've learned different things about philosophy where the romance behind it behind the concepts are something that's cool to me just because it's like in an abstract idea it's very interesting but I guess on the other hand there's also a practical side of philosophy that um, that I've only recently encountered just by reading uh, Stoicism I don't know if, you're, um, or if you know much about that but um, I guess how do you find that or how do you find that balance point between um, I guess, teaching the practical side of philosophy versus the abstract, and how do those collide for you? The first philosopher I, I read at all seriously was Marcus Aurelius, who was a Stoic. Okay, yeah, okay, awesome. And yeah. for him, philosophy was a way of life. And I've always harbored the conviction, really, that that's what philosophy ought to be. Not a not a game, not a... Not a, a an intellectual plaything. When I studied philosophy at Oxford, it did seem to me that almost all we were doing uh, was games playing. You know, it was uh, 
a few years later that Tom Stoppard wrote a play called Jumpers in which philosophers are represented as acrobats, you know, playing games and jumping on each other's backs and so on. <coughs> when I was uh, serving in Vietnam and facing ethical, serious ethical issues and seeing you know, human suffering, uh, I, I renewed my resolve to think of philosophy as something practical and not to you know, spend my intellectual life playing games. So I do think philosophy is a way of life, and it certainly has affected me, period. How's that? That's great. Um, <coughs> actually, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, the philosophy of ethics, I guess, because um, <coughs> I know when we talked <coughs> over the summer, you said that one of the things you're trying to do for the university is um, starting an ethics center. Yes. Right? And I was wondering... Um, what form that would take and what would the Ethics Center be designed to do? Well, the Ethics Center would be designed to attract funding to support uh, research and teaching in ethics. We have a, a dearth of specialists who are focusing on practical philosophy or practical ethics here, and I'd like to change that. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. So that's the basic idea. Okay. Could you, could you, I guess, briefly give an example of um, like an area of practical ethics? Um, you know, something that that field would be um, of immense importance to, like something that could really, really improve. Well, uh, most great universities have some uh, commitment to uh, bioethics, especially universities that have medical schools. Uh, we do not have any regular faculty appointments in bioethics. Uh, most major business schools have uh, ethics programs with uh, faculty members who are devoted to the study of business ethics. Uh, we have a really uh, one wonderful person, Robert Prentice, and the Ethics Unwrap program, which is terrific. But we really don't have uh, a cadre of, of professors who are working in this area. And so I guess while I was doing my research on you, <laughs> very extensive background, by the way, um, I came across something called the Ajax Dilemma. And I, I watched uh, uh, your speech at the, I think it was at a McCombs event. Yeah. And uh, I watched the whole hour, which was very, very fascinating. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the Ajax Dilemma and how that applies to um, a real world business setting. <coughs> I hope you do learn to edit. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. in the afternoon, I can't help coughing. <coughs> so the Ajax Dilemma uh, grew out of a combination of experiences. I had been working on the plays of Sophocles because with a friend I translated all of them and wrote introductory essays for each one, and I taught a graduate seminar in classics on the plays of Sophocles. Sophocles wrote a fabulous play about Ajax. In thinking about that play, I was struck by the connection between what was going on in that play and the kinds of experiences that I had had as a 
as an administrator, you know, dealing with people's salaries, dealing with promotions, dealing with all the things that get working folk really upset about their working environment. And the Ajax story is about somebody who gets really upset because he feels he's being taken for granted, while somebody uh, who's not as hardworking or loyal as he is, but who is perhaps a bit smarter, is getting all the rewards. So I thought quite a lot about what that meant, and that's I wrote a book about that. It's about justice in the workplace, really. <coughs> oh, and I, at the same time as I was writing this, I was having conversations with a friend and former Plan 2 student who was a serial entrepreneur who was dealing with similar problems in trying to decide how to distribute bonuses to his employees. And so we had some good conversations about that, and that helped me uh, see, see my way to writing this book. I see. And I guess uh, in this speech, you ended with uh, um, the fact that there isn't a perfect solution to the, to the problem. Has that stance changed at all? Or? No. Oh. <laughs> well, that's why I call it a dilemma. Right, right. <coughs> you have to face the, the fact that, well, in a, a very simple situation, you can achieve fairness. Everybody's doing the same work and working the same hours. And has the same background, uh, then you can pay them all the same, and it's obviously fair. I call this the fairness zone. <coughs> but it's almost impossible to figure out what would be a fair solution to uh, uh, the finding the right rewards for people who do very different kinds of work, make different kinds of contribution, and who, to make matters more complicated, actually have different values which is what complicates the Ajax dilemma. Odysseus and Ajax are looking for different things. As, uh, as often happens in the real world. <coughs> in, uh, you know, for example, in, in my time in Vietnam in 1969-1970, I think the senior officers all wanted medals and promotions, and the junior people like me all wanted to get home in one piece. These are different goals, different values. Much more to be said about all of this. Right. So what did you end up telling your, uh, your friend who came to you for help? Or is that confidential in that case then? It's totally... Oh, oh the... The bonus, the bonus problem, yeah. Well... Well, I had no solution to give him, obviously, because I don't believe there is a, right. a, a, uh, a solution you can reach by algorithm. Uh, but what I do believe, and what I said to him and said in the book, is that whatever uh, decision you make about this, you have to be able to persuade your, your team that this is uh, in their best interest and that that you are, in fact, recognizing the individual qualities of the team members. You know, in, in what went wrong in the Ajax case is, to begin with, no one trusted the leader, Agamemnon. He was not acting as a leader. 
<coughs> so no one trusted the result. And there was a culture prevailing in the army according to which uh, the virtues of Ajax, courage and loyalty and physical strength, were much more valuable than the virtues of Odysseus, which are intellectual, have to do with using words. But of course, as that war played out, it was the intellectual was going to win the war, and not the, not the, and not courage. Though <coughs> <coughs> no, took courage, but that wasn't uh, sufficient, without a, a strategy of the kind Odysseus could come up with. The, the leadership of that army had failed, to, uh, help the players on the army appreciate the value of Odysseus. So on a football team, I don't pretend to know much about football, but I, I don't think that the uh, offensive line resents the fact that the quarterback is paid more and gets more attention in the newspapers. <coughs> because they understand what he does for the team. And he understands what they do for him, after all, because they protect him. And that's an easy call, right? It, you know, because they understand the game, they understand the value of the various positions in it. In a, a business world or in an army, it may not be so clear. And it's part of the job of leadership, which really is the main topic of the Ajax Dilemma, it's leadership. It's part of the job of leadership to uh, make it clear to the team what the value of each player is. Each player on the team is valuable to the team. Team can't win without all of the players. <coughs> <coughs> but in some contexts, it's hard to see what it is that they're contributing. And that was the case in the Ajax dilemma. So do you see yourself more as an Ajax or an Odysseus? Most people see themselves more as Ajax, more as being passed over. <coughs> I'm so sorry. No worries. I hope, as I say, I hope you do get to edit. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is, uh, you know, my lungs just start collecting fluid in the afternoons. No, it's, it's totally And I have right. to bring it up. Yeah. <coughs> Water is nice, but it doesn't help. I just have to bring this stuff up. Oh, I see. Uh, I think I see myself as something of a combination, but maybe more of an Ajax. <clears throat> oh, so you see yourself more as an Ajax? Because, I mean, before, like, even though I asked the question, I kind of answered it in my head in the sense that I knew you were definitely an Odysseus. Well, I think I'm both. <laughs> right. <coughs> I'm okay. Yeah, yeah no worries. Um, <clears throat> so that's very interesting. So I guess... I guess your your philosophy on leadership is something that I that I want to go more into um, because I guess in our world lit class we never really talked about leadership or, or anything uh, like that. So I was wondering, I guess, if you've ever had and and this pertains to one of the questions that um, a student asked Hannah. Hannah, thank you for the question. I can't say your last name, but 
so she she asked, um, how did the people in your life shape your philosophical leanings? Um, and there's a part two to that, but I'll let you respond to that first. Let's hope that's the end of it. Uh, how did the people in my life shape my philosophical leanings? Uh, well, I've had, I've been fortunate in, in my teachers. Well, I'll give you one example of a teacher who made a big impression on me towards the end of my time with him. He was my philosophy tutor at Oxford. <clears throat> and I asked him whether he thought I ought to go to graduate school in philosophy or do something else. And I wanted him to say something simple like, yes, you're smart enough, you should go to graduate school in philosophy. Or no, you're too dumb, don't do it. <coughs> but what he actually did is this. He said, uh, let's uh, come to lunch and then we'll take a walk on the Ridgeway. So I went to his house for lunch. We had lunch and then I got into his car with him. He had a 1922 Humber automobile, which was quite spectacular. And he wore a, a scarf that trailed. He was about six foot five. He wore a big long scarf that trailed down to his knees. And we went up off to the Ridgeway in the Berkshire Downs. And we walked all afternoon and talked about philosophy and literature, the things I was interested in. And he never answered my question, but it was one of the best advising sessions I'd ever had. And I, I realized that he was, he was right. And when a student asks me a, a life question like that, I try to take it much more seriously than to say, oh, do this or do that. I said, well, let's, let's go to lunch, talk about this. <coughs> <coughs> And this connects with, a, I guess, a philosophical idea about human, human relations, which is that each person has an independent mind. And nothing you, you tell a person is going to be important unless that person makes it, makes it his or her own, which is why I, I conduct classes the way I do with a a minimum of teaching and a maximum of activities in which students write and talk and discuss things with each other. Because <clears throat> so I think that's where the, where the real learning takes place. Not sitting passively while somebody tells you what to think, but when you're actively working out what to think yourself. <coughs> <coughs> It's, it's funny because I guess I totally agree with that, first of all. Um, but I, I also think that there's this, I want to say, trend going on where I guess people want to follow what they really enjoy, but at the same time, they're also afraid that they won't gain as much societal status or money or find a job if they're only doing what they really enjoy. So how do you, how do you tell someone to, I guess, resist that pressure of pushing people into a certain funnel of only doing, uh, you know, investment banking or only doing management consulting. How do you, how do you tell people to resist that? 
Well, do do you think that uh, you can really excel in a line of work that you dislike? No. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess the thing about that is that like people are always in jobs that they dislike, right? Even though they're not excelling, they're still earning something tangible, right? In the sense of monetary reward or or um, other rewards like that. You think everyone is like that? I don't think everyone is like that, but I think a lot of people are because <coughs> like that. That's too bad. Yeah. Like I guess that's one of the big reasons why I left electrical engineering was. Uh, was because my dad told me that an MBA, which is something I wanted to do, because that's something he did, would be valuable if I got an engineering undergrad. Mm. And so that's what I did, because I thought that'd be the valuable thing to do and the practical thing to do. But turns out I hated uh, physics. And no offense to Cockrell School of Engineering if you're listening to this. <laughs> but uh, but that, that's something that I, that I left. But I've, I've talked to a lot of friends of mine where they feel like they don't really have a choice in and what they can do, right? Be, they're only doing it so that they can get a job out of college, not necessarily exploring what they really enjoy. So I, I've been seeing that trend, I guess. And I was wondering, what's the best advice you can give someone in that position? Well, <clears throat> I would suggest that you talk to people who are successful in careers that you think you might want to go into and find out what they enjoy about them. <clears throat> if they do. You know, I'm 75 years old and I've never met anybody who was successful in the way that everybody wants to be successful who did not like what he did. <clears throat> and that's true of people in business or engineering or at the academic world or in the arts. If they don't really enjoy it, they're not going to be good enough at it to be successes. They might just eke out a living. But if you're doing something you don't enjoy, you know, why are you why are you here? <coughs> and that people get trapped because they think there are only two or three ways to make a living, which is nonsense. They're only looking at, they're looking at too small a range of options. And many people are able to you know, create their own careers in, in surprising ways. Because they, they know what they want to do and they know what they're good at. And they find a way of putting it together into a career that uh, goes, goes way beyond the standard careers that, that parents are likely to think of. They think law, medicine, engineering, those are the three, uh, or and and business, the MBA, those four. <coughs> those are the things so many people think about, but yet um, a great many of the younger people I know are working in careers that didn't exist when I was in college, and may not even have existed 10 years ago. The world is, is changing very fast. 
I can also say that one of the greatest good fortunes that can befall a person is to find a way of doing meaningful work <clears throat> that's meaningful to the person who's doing it and, and gives pleasure besides. You know, to be stuck in a meaningless life is pretty miserable. <coughs> and it's not necessary. It just isn't. Well, I guess I almost forgot to ask uh, part two of Hannah's question. Oh, yes. but, uh, so she also wants to know, do empirical experiences shape your beliefs like logical arguments you might study in a text? Do empirical experiences of the world shape my beliefs? Yes, I suppose they have to. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Thank it you. It makes a difference. Yeah. And but no experiences are repeatable. I can't, you know, you can't have the experiences I've had. <coughs> so. Awesome. Um, so now Sahib has a question, uh, <coughs> and he's wondering and wondering what's the craziest story you've never told anyone. And this stays in this room, of course. That goes without saying. <laughs> the craziest story I've never told anyone. Yeah. I can't think of any crazy story I've never told anyone. What's the, maybe what's the craziest thing that happened to you while you were in Vietnam? Is there a story of like a huge coincidence that's happened? <coughs> uh, this is not a coincidence, but it, it is a kind of epiphany, if you will. I'm, uh, I've been in Vietnam a week. I don't really know anything about what's going on around me. I've been trained, of course, up to a point, but the training has, is, is very limited and doesn't connect with where I actually am, which is in a Cambodian district, district in Vietnam inhabited all by, entirely by a Khmer, by Cambodian people, uh, working with, uh, as an advisor <coughs> for an intelligence officer named Aziz, who is a Vietnamese Muslim, uh, whose background family goes back to somewhere in Indonesia, I suspect. People don't realize how many mosques there are in Vietnam. <coughs> And I'm told that we're going up to uh, a village in the foothills of the mountains, mountains being very dangerous because they're occupied by the enemy, uh, to pick up uh, a, a uh, to arrest someone who was thought to be collaborating with the Viet Cong. And will I drive the jeep? You know, so. I drive the Jeep, and I'm very nervous about all this because this is going into the edges of enemy territory. And my, and this is crazy, right? My, 
I'm in a hurry and I'm nervous, I guess, and I don't get the top of my canteen on quite tightly enough so that it's leaking, you know, attached to my belt. So anyway, <coughs> awkward situation. Right. Yeah. So we, I drive the team of, uh, you know, Cambodian Vietnamese policemen with Aziz up into the mountain and we arrest a, uh, the suspected enemy sympathizer turns out to be an elderly woman, which astonished me. And I, I didn't know what to say or even what to ask. You know, what, what, why in the world are we doing this? And they put her in the back of the Jeep and I start driving down the mountain. I'm assuming that they'll be, you know, they will debrief her and find out what they can from her. <clears throat> and send her back home, which I think is what happened. But she'd never been in a Jeep before in her life, it turned out, or <clears throat> anything like it. And I was driving down the mountain on this uh, rutted, rocky road, pretty much as fast as I thought it was safe to go because I didn't want to get, get a shot because I thought there could be enemy on either side of the road. And the one of the uh, policemen beside me tapped my shoulder and made me turn around and look. And I saw that the woman was absolutely terrified by the motion of the jeep. Yeah. So I slowed down. And what I, what I took away, I guess, was mystification of the whole process. I didn't know what was going on at the time. And, but I was struck by uh, the, the fact that the policeman who had arrested this woman also had compassion for her and uh, cared that she not be made to suffer in the Jeep. And so I slowed way down and we got down to the bottom of the mountain. And then I think the next day I was, I was moved to another, uh, another assignment, so I don't know anything more about what happened, uh, which bothers me now as I think back on it. Why, why didn't I follow up? But I was bemused. <coughs> and uh, I find it disturbing about myself that I wasn't more concerned about her because I was mostly concerned about myself at this moment and uh, but uh, gratified at the thought that these men were concerned about her well that's a crazy is that a is that, that crazy is enough a crazy story yeah. but I have told the story yeah. before I see okay that's totally fine yeah yeah well I've never heard it so I guess it doesn't make me feel good about myself but right I learned a lot but I guess at the moment I mean <coughs> I feel like anyone in that position would have, I guess, thought about oneself instead of... Well, I guess I, guess. I was thinking about all of us trying to get, get us down the mountain right. without being shot up. You know, so I wasn't thinking about anyone's comfort. Right. <coughs> and also, I didn't know how dangerous it was. It might not have been anywhere near as dangerous as I thought. Who knows? Yeah, well. Um, so I guess that reminds me of... Uh, the sympathizer a little bit 
um, just because... What is the sympathizer? The, the audience may not know. Oh, that's right, that's right. So, mm-hmm. I guess, background on the sympathizer. Uh, it was a, a book we had read in World Lit um, that won the Pulitzer Prize of 2016, I think, for, mm-hmm. uh, for fiction, and it was about this... Um, uh, spy for um, the Viet Cong that was uh, and uh, the person I forget his name or oh no sorry in the book he had he had no name so he was never he was never named in the book but the person was he's a double agent exactly double agent yeah. and sympathizes and he has blood brothers on both sides of the Civil War right <coughs> and uh, and it was interesting because he was half French and half Vietnamese um, but, and it was, so it was about his experiences, I'm guessing it was a he, his experiences. Oh, it's a he, yeah. Yeah. Um. His father had raped his mother. Right. She was a teenager. His father was a priest, a French priest. So I guess, I guess my question is, cause in, in the book, even though it was fiction and I described scenes of, of the war and what had happened. So I guess was, what I was wondering is how close to reality was that or were those descriptions like was he was it really far-fetched or was it no it was not far-fetched really yeah uh, it is it is fiction and at times he's pushing it uh, cranking it up into it a, to, to an absurd level but the description of the panicked uh, Vietnamese trying to flee Saigon as it's being taken over by the North Vietnamese that rang absolutely true to me from what I could imagine what I'd read about the event. And the uh, the interrogation scenes, I think, were probably pretty much accurate, though I was never part of an interrogation. I can't say that, but it, it, they rang true. And the, the various military events, actions, that uh, uh, ambush along the border, that, read, that rang true to me. <clears throat> I, I found it extremely painful to read the book but I I couldn't put it down and I wondered right up until the last minute what I was doing the right thing to ask a bunch of first-year students to read such a uh, such a difficult book but you liked it oh I loved it yeah. um, well I, I forget <coughs> the author's name do you remember what his what his name was uh, Nguyen. Right, yeah. Uh, no, I, I thought the book was, and I fully recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it yet, but um, it was definitely heart-wrenching, but I thought the writing was just fantastic. Um, his storytelling was just, oh my God, it was so good. And He's a, he's a terrific writer. Yeah. And he treats uh, the the racism that Asians, uh, Asian Americans encounter here uh vividly and I think accurately is one reason I chose it is uh, when we talk about racism in this country where we often limit ourselves uh, to uh, talking about white-black relations which are terrible and need to be addressed but I thought that this was something that you wouldn't know much about or, or, or would not have thought much about except insofar as you yourself experienced it. And since about a third of the class were Asian American, right. they knew what he yeah. was talking about. The stereotypes that uh, white Anglos apply to Asian Americans, which are pretty limiting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess the, the best part for me, because I guess the listeners can't see my face, but I'm half Chinese, half uh, white. And I guess the resonating part for me was, I guess, this duality inside him that constantly tormented him. The fact that, you know, his father <coughs> did uh, rape his mother and, uh, um, and he was constantly of just two minds. And that was, that was so fascinating for me to read about. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really interesting yeah. for no, for was, your generation to right. read that book. Yeah. yeah, no, it was great. Um, so I guess uh, we're almost coming to an end here. Um, are there any final words you'd like to say to our listeners? Well, I'm sure you have more questions. Um, Actually, yeah, I uh, because I guess we're just starting out, so um, we're, our name isn't out there yet. Yeah. But uh, but we're we're slowly <coughs> gaining a following for sure. But yeah. um, but yeah. So only Sahib and Hannah were the ones who who asked I questions. See. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I guess. Do you have any for him? any last questions? I don't think so. Well, I'll say a little bit. I came to Austin in 1973 because they offered me a, a job, and I came rather reluctantly because I didn't think I wanted to live in Texas. I'd never really spent much time south of the Mason-Dixon line, and I'd, or west of the Mississippi, for that matter. So this seemed very foreign to me when I came here, and Austin was a sleepy southern town with a healthy uh, addition of hippies, but there wasn't a whole lot going on here. And I, wonder, and I thought I'd be here a year or two before you know, I wanted to move on, or before the university wanted me to move on. <clears throat> but I found out almost really in the first year that teaching was a profession that I, I really enjoyed. You may have noticed <laughs> that. And then uh, in 1977, 78, I started teaching in Plan 2. And I'd already encountered some Plan 2 students who were wonderful. And that really drove it home to me that I would be happy teaching here. It's due largely to the (coughs) 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 it's due to the high quality of the students and the just the spirit that has infused Plan 2 since I first encountered it in the early 70s and is still there today. I mean, Plan 2 class is recognizably a wonderful Plan 2 class, you know, 40 years later. Uh, it's been a, a delight for me. So I want to thank all the students who have made it such a pleasure for me to have this career. Do you think you'll teach another world Day class somewhere down the line? I don't know. I'd like to. I'll, I'll hang on to the books and the syllabus. Of course, I'll do it differently. Right. Every time I teach it, I want to teach a very recent prize-winning book. That's why I chose the sympathizer. Mm-hmm. And we start with, uh, with Homer. <clears throat> I always start with Homer. But I believe that you're not under, 
appreciating literature as a as a living, growing phenomenon if you don't visit it at at at, at the growing end as well. You know, when a tree stops growing, it's dying. You know, literature is growing all the time, as is philosophy. And I, so I try to get. I, I try to get down to something really contemporary. So if I do it again, there'll be another contemporary novel. And I hope also to continue teaching Plantu philosophy. Maybe I could engineer some sort of dream year in which I taught world and philosophy in the same year. I've never done that. That would be pretty crazy. Two, two year-long courses, one for freshmen, one for sophomores. Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to talk people into letting me do that sometime. Yeah, if you ever need a TA for that dream year, I'd happy to okay. sign on to that. <coughs> yeah. Okay, well, uh, thank you for sharing everything, Professor. That was a great conversation, and uh, and stay tuned for. More professors, if you have any recommendations for professors Anna and I should interview, uh, let us know. Follow our Facebook page. Uh, <laughs> and this podcast is coming to an iTunes near you soon, so stay tuned for that as well. All right, thanks, everyone. <laughs>